The following podcast is brought to you by OpenG Records. Actually, this is a re-release of an interview I did some time ago with Stephen Stuckey, who was a mentor and partner with us here at OpenG Records. Sadly, Steve passed away this weekend, and in his honor, we're going to be giving a show at National Sawdust in Brooklyn on March 2nd at 7 o'clock. To that end, I thought I would re-release this interview. It's one of my favorite interviews, despite the fact that as a fledgling broadcaster, I did roughly all of the wrong things, including leaving my phone on, trying to live stream it over the internet, and ask for comments at the same time. And nonetheless, Steve came through with what I think is a charming and lovely interview, despite my shortcomings. Uh, And actually, my favorite story of the whole thing is that after he left, I realized that he'd left his keys in my couch, uh, and I ran after him two blocks in the rain in New York to give him his keys back. Uh, and that's that's definitely uh, something I'll, I'll remember for a long time. So um, at the beginning of this podcast, you'll hear about a minute and a half of a piece called Schubert Dream, which was written for uh, by Steve for piano four hands and performed by Zach Bierken and Miri Yampolsky. And we referenced the piece a couple of times on the interview, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. So here it is. So you can, this is a nice microphone, you don't have to like crowd it too okay. much if you don't okay. like. Okay. Uh, so I'm here with... I'd like to have the studio. <laughs> yeah, right, it's nice. Yeah, <laughs> it's very like nice. It's a good practice chi. Yeah. Normally I like to have a, a, a glass of scotch for you, uh, but I know you have work. Yes. And, and other engagements. Maybe Normally a, I like to have a glass of scotch <laughs> as well. At a different time. Perhaps me, later, yeah. Uh, let me make a brief introduction. This is my guest, uh, Steve Stuckey. Uh, winner of the 2005 Pulitzer Prize, uh, is taught at Cornell, UC Berkeley, the Aspen School, uh, now Juilliard. Uh, really, uh, I have to say, you know, I was well familiar with your work, but as I did research for this podcast, I was just like blown away by your resume. It's really <laughs> congratulations on the career that you've had. It's really well, thank you. It's unbelievable. I, I want to start... I um, always feel tired when I hear people start reciting these things. You know? <laughs> I did all of that. Yeah, uh, yeah I know. No wonder my back hurts. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Let's. Um, I'm always fascinated by how people grow up, and as I was reading about you, I noticed uh, you grew up originally in Kansas, and then moved to Texas, I believe, when you were early. So, what what were your early exposures to music in Kansas? I uh, I grew up among farmers, uh, and not uh, in a classical music area of the country. Uh, but my maternal grandfather played the violin. And he had played in, I think, theater orchestras, vaudeville orchestras in Kansas City, you know, in mm -hmm. the late 19th century, early 20th century. We have a, like original Kansas City, Kansas City. Yeah, we have a picture of him from, I think, 1915, you know, in, wearing white tie and with his fiddle tucked under his arm, looking very handsome. Um, and I don't have actual memories of hearing him play, but I remember that picture. And I can only think that I must have gotten some interest from my grandmother and grandfather. So it's sort of a family mythology kind of experience. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's one of these memories that you construct from having been told about it or from seeing pictures. Um, but I, was li I, I started listening to records mm -hmm. as, as early as I could. How um, early are you thinking? Well, I, I think it's probably two or three years old, you know. What kind of records did you have? My mother that? had one of those phonographs that was in a box, and you'd open the lid, you know, yeah, yeah. and the turntable would be in there, and the speakers were built into the sides. Yeah, it's like an original portable kind of uh, setup. Yeah. yeah. And she had, uh, to my, in, in my memory, she had two albums. It was when a symphony would take up three or four platters, right? Right, right. <laughs> uh, was, it, was 78s? 78s. Yeah, yeah. And she had the New World Symphony. Probably Leopold Stokowski uh -huh. and uh, Peter and the Wolf. Maybe also Stokowski. Uh -huh. And um, I just used to listen to this and, and, and think, I'd, I'd like to do that. Were those the only two records? That... Those are the only two I can remember in her collection. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I, a similar, I did an interview with another composer named David Glazer, mm -hmm. and he... He only had two records around the same time in his house, and they were the Rite of Spring and Ina Kleinenach music. And so, somehow those two things also like this. I didn't run into the Rite of Spring till I was, you know, in double digits. Right, me too. <laughs> me too. I, I, we come from a somewhat similar background, actually, which is why I, I'm definitely interested in hearing this part. So neither of your parents were musicians. No, no. Um, except for my grandfather, who had really put his violin away by the time I knew him, you right. know. Um, no, it was just a kind of fluke. You, so you completely self-motivated yeah. into that. But school music, you know, like. um, especially I moved to Texas when I was nine. Mm -hmm. And in those days, Texas had very good school music programs. They still do. Paid I think. for by oil. Right. They uh, still do, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was, I got a lot of encouragement from school teachers. What were you, were you playing at that point? I played, eventually I played the viola. I wanted to play a string instrument, and um, you had to rent the violins and cellos, but the violas were free. <laughs> there's, there's a viola joke in there yeah, somewhere. No, it's a metaphor. I really they, don't know what it is. They couldn't give it away, you know. So, uh, uh, and I played viola for quite a long time you know, through college. Um, I eventually gave it up. I wasn't practicing and nobody wants to sit by you if you can't play in tune you right. know so you <laughs> i've been there yeah <laughs> so um so you're in public schools at what point do you find that this is really what you want to do as a course of your life pretty early i i 
I don't recall ever having a, another ambition, a career ambition than uh, than than writing music. Um, I had no clear idea how one would make a living at that. I still don't. I mean, in a certain way, you know. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a precarious thing to do, but I I feel very very lucky that um, the only thing I ever wanted to do is what I ended up doing, and that I'm getting paid for it. Was there at all when you were young like a real like a seminal piece or a seminal performance that really was like that blows my mind? There's there's not one single you know road to Damascus right. uh, <laughs> for me, but I would I spent. Uh, I spent my Saturdays at the public library, and I went through the entire record collection, I'm sure, whatever it was, you know. And so I was listening to Shostakovich symphonies and Aaron Copland and, you know, Sam Barber. At what and, age? Oh, eight, nine, ten, mm-hmm. you know, all, as, as soon as I could, really. Right. You were just personally interested in absorbing that music or like listening to everything that you could? Everything I could. Everything I could. I wanted to be those guys, you know. Like some kids might want to be Derek Jeter or... Right, right. <laughs> I see. I never wanted to be a fireman for some reason. I wanted to, <laughs> wanted to be a composer. <laughs> right. Uh, so when when did you start producing compositions? I started own? making scores before I could read music. Just just making gibberish, you know, musical notation. How... How would you do that? Do you recall? Well, like, you know, five lines and some sharps and flats. I mean, it, it, so you would copy that far. You wouldn't just, you would make up your own notation. Just no, no, no. But, uh, but imitation music. Uh, some people think that's what I'm still doing. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not get into but, the quantitative uh, side. Of but it. no, I uh, really before I could before I could read music, and then as soon as I could read music, which was was pretty easy once you once they explained it to right. me. You know. Um, it's somewhat intuitive. Most I was, go up yeah, I, I was down. writing real pieces, uh, that is, real imitations of real pieces. For what kind of... You know, uh, I wrote an opera on the Pickwick Papers, I remember, when I was about 12. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I got past the first scene. Yeah, but still, that's like insane. For like for a, non, for a 20th century kid, you know, it's not like we have Mozarts running around that aren't right. maybe writing dance music. Well, I'm not saying it was good. Um, and I'm I'm not being self-deprecating now, but I I was a child prodigy, who who was a late bloomer. Right. That means I wrote music early, but I didn't get a handle on it until late. And what would you consider to be late? I think the first time I really came into my own with with anything worth that I would that I would want to listen to again. Yeah. I was in my thirties, probably. Hmm. I was out of school. You know, there's like, a, I think, a, a philosophy in a lot of Scandinavian countries that you're not really outside of your uh, adolescence until your early to mid-30s. Well... Uh, I kind of, I feel a little similarly, but um, that's interesting. I mean, there's the, you know, there's the 10,000-hour thing. I think I put in 30, 40,000 hours before I became getting right. good, you know. Right, uh, You do have to put in the time. Yeah, the, the time plus the talent is like, you know... I was watching a movie, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which is a, mm-hmm. a really great, and, and at a certain point, you can work and work and get very, very good, but at a certain point, you also have to have talent. And you have to have talent, and you also have to work really, really hard. Yeah, it's talent like, without work doesn't actually produce anything at all. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. In fact, it might produce the most frustrating things <laughs> on the planet. So, um, let's talk a little bit about your process of, of how you write. Um, yeah. Do you write every day? I wish. 
Ideally, yes. Yeah. Do you write on a schedule? Do you schedule time for yourself? Ideally, yes. Ideally, I would write every day in the morning. I'm a, my brain is better in the morning. Oh, somebody sent that to you. Oh, that's nice. Thank all you. All right, thank you. That's the. Um, in in actuality, I don't have control of my schedule. You know, right, because I'm still teaching. Quite busy. Doing other things, traveling. Um, my mentor was a Polish composer, Lutosławski. Somebody once asked him, do you compose every day? And he said, every day I think like a composer. So on the days when you can't sit down and do it, um, doesn't mean your mind isn't shouldn't be working on the problem. Right. And so I try to think about the piece in, that's in progress every day. Do you uh, ever make notes to yourself? Um, sure. Do you make notes to yourself like, uh, you know, how some people might... If they have a dream or something, they wake up from, yeah. uh, you know, you, yeah. you, so tomorrow I, I have this idea, I want to flesh this I out. I do, I do. But more often, if, if uh, and I think this is true of many creative artists, if you come to an impasse, if you just walk away from it and don't think about it, some unconscious part of your brain is still working on the problem and you can probably solve it the next morning. Do you think that, like, as you sleep, is, is it necessarily like? Because for me, I think that your brain works on problems that you don't recognize while you're asleep. Is it always the yeah. next day, or do you, does it maybe pop up later? The in the oh, it, it it might be later, but yeah. but but um, the thing is to work every day, or at least to think about working every day, so that the machinery never goes cold. That way, your mind can keep working on on it while you're at dinner or so you know or sleeping primed. or whatever yeah if if you let the if you let the whole factory shut down then it, then starting it up is is a slow process i see uh, I, i've talked with several composers on 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 this series and it's really interesting how some some composers like joan tower will just start writing and like it's a like a novel like the characters take themselves where it goes yeah. and then other composers have a very strict sort of structure that they have to have in mind before they even start to put pen to paper. Where do you sort of fall in that? In spectrum? the middle. I'm I'm very concerned about structure and I would like to know as much about the structure beforehand as possible. But I've found and getting older I find it more and more that I can't always know. Sometimes I I'm I'm waiting to figure out what I want to do and I just Time is running out, and I just have to start. Mm -hmm. For like a commission or something. Yeah, like that. Um, I'm almost everything I write has a deadline. Right. Everything has a deadline, really. And sometimes I just have to plunge in, and what? then, like Joan, um, find out who the characters are, let them start interacting, um, let the piece eventually start telling me things about itself. Have you ever had a piece that turned out completely differently at the end? than you thought, than you even conceived of at the beginning? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that can be exciting if it works. I, I've, I've had a few pieces recently where I didn't know what the ending was going to be until maybe halfway in. I imagine there, it takes a little bit of humility, like, to sort of... It takes, a lot, of, it takes a lot of humility to do this anyway, you know. Well, it's, yeah. <laughs> because, uh, you know, here we are attempting to join the same guild, you know, that that Brahms and Palestrina belong to. Yeah. You know, it takes a lot of humility. Right. But, yeah, well, and I would think, uh, 
I, I like that, by the way. It's a very... I, I love to see seriously composed music in the same continuum as those old guys. The craftsmanship. For me, on, on my horn, I think about, you know, the, the, the player that Mozart wrote for, that Brahms wrote for, and, and that kind of craftsmanship in that line. Um, I imagine... Also, not being able to control the outcome of your performances is humbling from time to time. It's, that is to say, that it's, you have to put it in somebody else's hands. That's to true. Realize. It's uh, uh, that's a um, that is if you you know forgive me being a little harsh. I think that's a mistake that many young composers make. That is wanting to control too exactly um, the interpretations of their own music. Uh, that, so, so that the perfect performance is exactly the way they played it at home. Right. That there is a perfect performance yeah. out I, there. I, I, I don't like that um, that philosophy at all. I like learning from the musicians things that I couldn't have thought of myself. Right. That's that could be one of the most rewarding parts of it. It's one of the in, sort of the that way the piece is alive. It continues to grow after it leaves, you know, the the, the nursery. Yeah, you know, th- <clears throat> things achieve a performance practice almost of their own, even five, ten years down the road with um, with repeated playings, etc. Um, there was a point I was going to push on, but it w- it will come back to me. Well, if it comes to me, yeah. I'll I'll just just a, a one more gloss on that. I wrote a symphony a couple of years ago that was for. Los Angeles and New York, and it's now been played three times, so three different conductors, and the three performances are very different, and they're all good. Hmm. Uh, it's not that uh, so uh, Dudamel, Alan Gilbert, and hmm. Leonard Slatkin, and it's not that one is better than the other. It is that I'm delighted that I was able to make a piece that they wanted to put themselves into, yeah, um, and that you know is sturdy enough to carry the emotional and artistic contribution of other people as well as mine. That has to be gratifying because that's the great thing about Brahms or, or to a lesser extent, Mozart, but, but of, of some composers where there is no definitive like performance. like You can get wildly different performances of even a single movement that work because the music can handle it. It's got to feel good to at least... Actually, the... Um, the 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 piece uh, the the forehand panel piece that mm-hmm. that Zach Bjorken and Mary Yampolsky recorded for you yes. for your label, their performance is quite different from anybody else's. It's 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 darker. Uh, Why do you think in their in their reading of that piece, which I like very much, I think it's probably the best approach. But but it's something that I didn't know I was putting in. Uh, there is this sort of foreboding Schubert death year, you know, mm-hmm. atmosphere, 1828 atmosphere, I, you know, that is stronger than I meant for it to be, and I think more powerful than I could have imagined. Hmm. And they did that. We were going to get into that piece later. Okay, sorry. Let's, but... No, 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 <laughs> let's, let's skip ahead, and, yeah. and since we're talking about it, let's talk about it. Um, that's really interesting, because I, I talked to him right before you came, and I, and I said, listen, are there, are there any cool questions that I couldn't find? doing regular research and, and he wanted to talk he wanted me to talk about the dream aspect in fact the subtitle of or in the title of your work right. it says Schubert dream um, can you just uh, why would you choose to go into a dream state with Schubert I do know this answer a little bit but I'm yeah I'm not even sure I know the answer but I'll tell you the answer that you probably think we're both going right. to give um, 
of course, the, sh the whole Schubert thing was not my idea. It was Manny Axe's idea. Uh, Emmanuel Axe was doing a series with the Chamber Music Society, Lincoln Center, um, and he did a Schubert-themed concert that had John Harbison's um, November 1828 piece that imagines Schubert crossing into heaven and hearing modern music and mm -hmm. sort of trying it out for himself. <laughs> uh, and then quite a bit of actual Schubert, and he wanted to, he commissioned a piece to go in that program for himself and his wife for four hands. And so I had to get Schubert into the act somehow. Right. So I looked at all the forehand music, and I eventually found some fragments in this uh, uh, famous duo in A major, grand duo in A major, that um, that I thought I could manipulate in my own world, you know. Mm -hmm. um, firstly. Secondly, I've been interested in the kind of dreamy, surrealist relationship with older music before. Mm -hmm. I was commissioned to write a piece about Viennese music way back in the 80s that became Dream Waltzes. And it is a kind of dreamy relationship with the past. I don't think you can actually go back, but you can dream about going back. Right. Um, and so that that trope has come up for me several times in Dream Waltzes and a piece of Henry Purcell, uh, uh, based on Henry Purcell called Funeral Music for Queen Mary and a few others. So um, my way of carrying out an assignment about older music is to think of it as a dream opportunity. Mm -hmm. Didn't Schubert often uh, write about dreams and his uh, choose dream sort of subjects in his music. Uh, I know, for example, in like the Earl King, you know, he has a very dreamy and he yeah. tends to like write the dreamy stuff in a very major, major mode. And then when in reality intrudes again, he kind of throws minor back. You know, I haven't thought about that. In in Alcarnic, that's correct. It I mean, in, the, in other songs because too, the, the fantasy in Alcarnic is that the that the that the Earl King is 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 offering you something good. Sweet, right, yeah. Turn, doesn't turn out well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, the bargain is not so good. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, my, my brother... But that whole major, the whole major minor thing in Schubert, which um, is one of the subjects that I've imported into my piece, yeah. obviously, um, is is a very poignant part of his language. The, he almost splits the third in, in, in a way, in, his, in the way that he goes about, if you go look at it like Shinkarian yeah. <laughs> style. Let's don't. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Um, and also pictures makes it, uh, oh, oh, its way into the piece a bit. You know, I don't know why. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's a purely musical relationship. Uh, you, you, you get to this place where there's an octave tremolo and and it it's the it's the exact moment in pictures where that thing would have happened and it i just couldn't prevent it from happening <laughs> but i have no rational explanation oh. for why it it why Mussorgsky strolls by in this <laughs> in this Schubert dream you know except that you know he's hey probably, guys. probably drunk and lost <laughs> just like real life yeah yeah, uh, Zach also wanted me to add that they missed the hell out of you uh, up at Cornell. Uh, so I missed I them, yeah. To, I'll to be home tomorrow. <laughs> throw that at you. Um, you have an interesting part of your career, which is uh, the longest 
composer in residence relationship with certainly an American orchestra, which is the Los Angeles Philharmonic. That was from, I think, 88 to 2009. Yeah, right? uh, 21 years. No one has checked on this, by the way. There may have been a resident composer in Pocatello, Idaho for 40 years. <laughs> Nobody actually checked on this. Well, it's like, you but... know, you got to call the winner of, like, you right. know, of, the, of MLB, the world champions. They don't play the Japanese league. Yeah. You gotta... No, I was in L.A. for a long time. I went there on a two-year contract and extended and extended, and then Esapekka Salonen arrived fairly soon after I did, and we we made a relationship that we couldn't somehow break up. I'm interested. So in, I finally left when he did. I see that that makes sense. Yeah. I, I but yeah, you you still have a good relationship with that orchestra, clearly with Dudamel and I do, I um, do, I do. They, they, they but it your... it was it was healthy for the, for us all to move on. You know, they have a, another composer in a similar role there now, John Adams, who's doing things that I wouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is all necessary. Right. Um, How and, do you maintain such a long relationship? Is it a lot of individual relationships that coalesce or just I became part of the family there I think I don't mean so much with the orchestra although of course m- many of the orchestra members became my friends how many pieces did you I write wrote them? them about six or seven pieces over the years but I I, I got to know the audience and they got to know me mm-hmm. and that was really very rewarding that we were we were truly in this together as listeners yeah that's an um, unusual relationship especially for a modern composer and they have a they have a very dedicated new music audience in los angeles mm-hmm. um not just for symphony concerts but for for other kinds of things and i know most of them by name you know uh, uh the same thing can happen in new york you know the audience for new music in new york there are different audiences right but let's say the the manhattan audience for classical contemporary music yes we know who these guys are, basically, right? You, right? Could, you could definitely know them by name. And and, and, uh, and you run into each other all the time, and you talk about things, and it's a very rewarding kind of sense of community. Right. Um, did you, let me ask you, as a clarinetist, I'm always envious of, uh, say, a pianist for having a wealth of colors and, and stuff at their hands. Here you have, basically, an orchestra as your instrument <laughs> to write for. Uh, did that feel freeing or is that somehow also restrictive in a way no it's it's the best i mean that i'm i'm the most at home with the orchestra and that's been true almost my whole life i was think that's from just listening to those orchestral recordings early on yeah and being inside of it too i mean we can't be more in the middle than being a viola that's right (laughs) but like you i spent my whole life in the orchestra up to a certain point and um that's that's my home repertory I, I played a lot of chamber music also when I was a kid, and I, I love writing chamber music, and I sang in choirs, and I love writing choral and vocal music. But the orchestras where I would spend all my time if somebody would pay me for it. You would spend, you would compose 100% for orchestra? Pretty much, yeah. You consider writing for film or anything like that? or I would... I would love to have tried it. it oh, nice. <laughs> there, there they are now. Yeah. <laughs> That's the beauty of future editing. That's, I'm recording this to... Uh... If it's Stanley Kubrick, that's kind of creepy. So, <laughs> so... <laughs> Maybe he's out there on the stream listening as... Uh, he as... tends to use legacy recordings anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, um, 
so I'm I sorry. would love to have tried film music. It didn't come up. And, you know, nowadays, uh, I mean, one of my colleagues at, at Juilliard, John Corleano, did three films. But the, and, and Osvaldo Gollyhoff does both concert music and film music. But the days when you could cross over that line easily are in the past. Very few people make that transition anymore. I think because the film music has become so technically specialized, you actually have to know that job. Right. You can't just be a composer and walk in, you know, with your yeah, pencil. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, old school with your score under your arm. Things yeah. things are different these days. No doubt. In fact, I think a lot of... There is one famous film composer who still writes his scores in pencil. It's John Williams. Really? And he writes a, he writes a short score of about eight or ten staves. He has a system. Mm-hmm. He has his own paper. And then he hands that off to the orchestrator, but essentially it's done. All the orchestration is essentially encoded already, right. and he's, he's written it in pencil. That's unbelievable. I don't know anybody else who now doesn't do it, you know, using sampling. and. Well, even know. like, I think there's a guy, Hans Zimmer has a whole team. He basically has yeah. ghost composers for him. Hans Zimmer and, and, um, and James Newton Howard, who are partners, uh, they have a different method, but uh, James actually writes it all himself, I think. But, but they... You know, they they have a a team of technicians and the most advanced orchestral sample library in the world. I know. see. Oh, uh, yeah. Cause they they're gonna put orchestras out of business so hard. My favorite, actually, modern. Well, you've got a you've got a director or a producer who says, I, "I'd like to hear the main title tomorrow," and he means for orchestra. He doesn't mean you right. plunking it plunking it out on the piano. You know. Well, and now the technology is getting pretty f- so it used to be that you could tell what the, when the synthesized strings were now you have to like I'm not sure all the time yeah. when I'm hearing yeah. real strings and when I'm not no it's pretty advanced and films have gone into asking a lot of I think rock musicians yeah. uh, the lead guitarist for Radiohead Johnny Greenwood wrote writes the music for P.T. Anderson's movies which I think are amazing soundtracks he uses a lot of Ligeti in that too that's sort of how I got to um, yeah I uh, got to that um, actually, we're closing in on five o'clock, which is your okay. your deadline. So uh, I just wanted to get you on a little bit of the record here and, and just start to hear your thoughts. And actually, I have a, a lot more sort of detailed questions that maybe uh, at some point you can take me up on the scotch. And, sure. Uh, and we'll <laughs> sit down and talk about some uh, process things at length. Because, sure, uh, sure. You've been a great guest. Pleasure. I appreciate all that. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Thanks very much.